We are following the life of Christ chronologically through the New Testament, and I say we are trying to follow the life of Christ chronologically. Uh, It is difficult sometimes to know exactly what followed what. Some of the gospel accounts differ from one another in the exact order, and we're dealing with one of those situations this morning. Some of you who were here last week, you will say, well, wait a minute, weren't we in Matthew 9 last week? And yes, you are correct. It might seem that we are skipping about two and a half chapters to this portion of God's Word in Matthew 12, but in actuality, Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel place the incident we studied last week as well as the one before us this morning back to back. And I think they do, as we will see, tie together and go together. Matthew, the 12th chapter, I want to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 14. Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the cornfields, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungry? And they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat, neither for them who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. But if ye had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. And when he was departed from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days, that they might accuse him? And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that shall have one sheep, And if it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like the other. Then the Pharisees went out. And held a counsel against him, how they might destroy him. Many of you probably know that there is a modern controversy over the subject of the Sabbath. It is debated in many circles, including the circles that we fellowship with, whether there is such a thing as a Christian Sabbath, that is, does the Sabbath day commandment from the old covenant carry over into the new? And if so, on what day should we observe the Sabbath? Should we do it on the seventh day of the week, as did the Jews, or the first day of the week, the so-called Christian Sabbath? And if we are to observe a Sabbath, then just how are we to observe it? What is okay to do, what is lawful, and what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Well, those are a lot of questions, and we could spend our entire time this morning talking about such things. But since I've addressed those things on other occasions, uh, let me say that I'm going to bypass that controversy. 
I just want to point out to you that the Sabbath has been a rather controversial thing from the very beginning. We see here in the first century that there was a controversy that came into focus concerning the lawful activity of men on the Sabbath days during the ministry of our Lord. There are, it seems, about seven different times that our Lord did something on the Sabbath day, and he seemed to do it intentionally, as it were, to sort of stir up these kinds of questions that we see in our text. In other words, rather than letting this lay, stepping aside and not sort of, as we say, stirring up the wasp nest, uh, Christ oftentimes walked in and threw a rock at the wasp nest, intentionally stirred things up so that this issue would come into the forefront. We've noted that Jesus' ministry, as we followed it in the chronological sense, is in a time of transition. For instance, we've studied his birth. The beginning of his ministry at his baptism, the beginning of his preaching ministry, and the beginning of what we call the gospel of the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, and then the miraculous signs that followed that teaching. Miraculous signs that were intended to demonstrate that he's just not blowing hot air when he makes these claims for himself. When he stands in this very authoritative sense in the Sermon on the Mount and says, I don't care who has said what about what, I say unto you, this is the way it is. As we pointed out, anybody can take an authoritative stance in the sight of men. The question is, do they have the power to back it up? And these miraculous signs of our Lord demonstrate very clearly that, yes, God is blessing him and authenticating what he is saying by the signs that he is doing. But three weeks ago, we studied what happened that day in that house, probably Peter's house, in the city of Capernaum, when men brought a man to him on on his bed. He was paralyzed. They went up, you remember, because of the crowd on the rooftop and tore a hole in the roof and let him down before Jesus. Oh, it was a dramatic moment. Everybody sort of held their breath. Everybody knew what was going to come next. I mean, they'd seen him heal people like this before. Everybody knew the next words out of his mouth were going to be, Man, take up thy bed and walk. But instead, Jesus looks at this man and says, Man, thy sins be forgiven thee. Jay Wimberly one time talked about a woman in his church, went shopping down at Walmart, and as she was leaving, um, she slipped, fell, and as she fell, she kicked over the gumball machine, broke it in gumballs, and went all over the store. Uh, he gave that in an illustration how somebody does something that just causes absolute chaos. Well, that's what happened this day. Jesus kicked over the gumball machine. As far as the scribes and the Pharisees were concerned, he just blasphemed. How dare you forgive a man his sins? Only God can forgive sin. Sin is directed at God. It's a debt we owe God. How, who are you to forgive God's debts? But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, So that you will know that the Son of Man does have power on earth to forgive sins. Man, get up, walk, and up he pops. And they leave scratching their heads. Man, have we seen strange things today. Here was the sign that they could see to authenticate and validate what Christ claimed he had power to do. To forgive a man his sins. Do you see the focus of his ministry is changing 
We're in a time of transition, or what I should say, he is drawing our attention to the main reason that he came. The main reason he came was not to heal you of your headache, not to put a little more money in your pocket. Why did he come? Kenny quoted the verse earlier this morning. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. That's what he's doing here. Yes, there were these miraculous signs that authenticate and validate his ministry. But the main reason he's here is to take care of the sin problem of man. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, says the angel, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what he's doing here. And from this point on, you'll notice that this becomes the focus of his ministry. Last week we saw how he called Matthew, the publican, to become one of his disciples. How he went to this great feast that Matthew threw and invited all his friends and his... Well, of course, the only friends a publican's going to have is more publicans, sinners. It's only about he's going to associate with a publican. And so here's Jesus sitting at this big banquet where all of these sinners and publicans and the Pharisees are outraged. They come to his disciples. How is it that your master eats with such like this? But the point is, if the focus of his ministry is to save men from their sins, we could ask the same thing. If a doctor has come into the world to heal men of their diseases, where do you expect to find the doctor? Well, you expect to find him with the sick. I mean, you go see the doctor today. Man, you get in there sit around the waiting room. You ever done that? Just sort of look around the waiting room. I mean, there's a bunch of sick people in there. Go to the hospital. There's people dying at the hospital. I mean, this is, that's where the doctors hang out. Where the sick people are. If he has come to save sinners, why are you then surprised that he hangs out with sinners? And again, the wonderful balance in the ministry of our Lord. He never comforts men in their sin. He never pats them on the back and says, they're there now, that's okay. It's all right. On the one hand, as the scriptures teach us, he was holy, he was separate from sinners. He came to call men out of sin. But on the other hand, he associated with sinners. He was called, as a way of ridicule, a friend of sinners. He was approachable. He was someone you could come to. He did not have that holier-than-thou air that the Pharisees seemed to sort of exude. And so you understand that we are in this time of moving our attention away from things like healing men's limbs and so forth to this bigger question, the idea of cleansing men and healing men who are sick with sin. Now, again, it seems to us that we have skipped about two chapters between that incident from last week, the calling of Matthew and the eating in his home, to this incident here in Matthew chapter 12. Again, I remind you that Mark's and Luke's gospel places them back to back. The tie that binds these two passages together is here in Matthew 12, verse 7, where Jesus quotes an Old Testament passage. You'll find it in the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. He quotes it here right out of the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. God says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now back there in Hosea, if you go back and look at the context, what God is saying to Israel is not that he doesn't want them to sacrifice to him anymore, or that they're not to observe the ceremonies and ordinance of the Old Testament law. 
what he's saying is, is I don't want your sacrifices. If you don't have mercy in your heart towards your fellow man, if there's not a heart of compassion and pity towards those who are suffering and in need, then don't bring me your sacrifices. You understand the sense of the thing. And Jesus quotes this verse right here. You who were here last week and awake last week uh, will remember that he quoted exactly the same verse last week when we dealt with what he says to the Pharisees. When they criticize him for eating with Matthew, with these publicans and sinners, he says, go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn. I'm going to give you a little assignment here. We're going to do a little Bible study. Go and learn what this means. Before you criticize me for eating with sinners, do a little research. Find out. Tell me what this means. Today, he says, if you knew what this means, or how does he say it in verse 7? If you had known what this means... I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Obviously, they didn't do their homework. They didn't do their Bible study. There he said, go and learn. Here he says, if you'd known, if you'd have figured out what that means, you wouldn't have condemned me. So there is the tie that binds these two passages together. In both cases, what we see is a collision between the Pharisees' interpretation of the law of the nature of God and of the mission of the Messiah with Jesus' interpretation of the law, the nature of God and the mission of the Messiah. Those two things are coming into conflict as we study. Now let's see what happens. In Matthew 12, starting in verse 1, we see that Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields. Uh, it says cornfields in the King James. A better translation would be grain fields, and it's probably wheat and uh Growing up on a farm where we grew, uh, I don't know, 100 acres or so of wheat, I certainly know what they did. Uh, because one of the neat things about working with wheat is once the wheat grain, the head appears and so forth, you can go out there and grab you a few heads, rub them in your hands, blow the husks away, and you've got the kernel of wheat left, and you can throw it in your mouth and eat it. You can chew it. It actually, after you chew it for a little bit, turns into a really nice sort of good-tasting gum-like substance. It's sort of like a poor man's chewing gum. So in other words, you can actually take the grains, put them in your mouth, and eat them. We used to do that all the time. Not having any chewing gum, you know, Wrigley Spearmint or anything, this is pretty good substitute when you're out there in the middle of nothing, in the middle of nowhere. Remember that under the law, when a man reaped his fields, he was not to reap the corners of the field, And any sheaves that he dropped in the reaping process, he was not to bend over and pick up. He was to leave them for the poor to have a provision for their hunger. They could come behind the reapers and pick up those pieces of grain that had been missed, and they could go and get grain out of the corners of the field. That's what Jesus and his disciples are doing. Now, you uh, have to understand that they're hungry. I mean, this isn't just somebody wanting a snack. They are, in fact, desperately hungry, and we're going to see that from the context this morning. But to the Pharisees, this is a horrible breach of the law, especially of the fourth commandment, that which forbade any kind of servile work 
on the seventh or Sabbath day of the week. Now, you'll notice that they accuse his disciples of violating this law, and Jesus responds to them in a threefold way that is utterly devastating. The first thing that Jesus does in responding to this criticism is point them to what David had done years and years. In fact, about a thousand years before Christ, King David, or he wasn't king at this point, he was just plain old David, and his men were fleeing King Saul, fleeing for their lives. They have just literally gotten away from Saul. He's, he's um, as it were, almost mad with his rage and jealousy of David. And they are fleeing for their lives. They are absolutely penniless. They have no provisions. They come to Nob, N-O-B, a place called Nob, where the tabernacle was erected. They go in, and David approaches the high priest, asking him for bread. Well, the high priest says, we don't have any bread here, except the only bread that we have is the showbread. Now, you remember under the law that these 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe, were to be laid out on this golden table inside the tabernacle every week, and that the priests were to eat that bread. So this was bread for the priest. And the high priest says, the only bread we've got in here is this bread, and it's holy. It's for the priests. It's not for common consumption. But David asked him for it anyway, and he gave it to David and to his men. Now, do you understand what's going on? Do you understand the principle? And what is it that Jesus is appealing to here? Here you had men starving to death. And the priest says, well, I'd like to feed you. I'd like to give you a little bread. But I'm sorry. All we've got here is holy bread. I mean, this is bread that's laid before God. It's bread for the priest. It's our ceremonial bread. We're sorry. You'll just have to starve to death. No, that's not what happened. The priest gave it to David and to his men, and from implication, without blame, this was not something that was held against him. It was not considered sin that here you had human need, human necessity, coming into collision with what we might call ceremonial exactness. When human necessity conflicts with ceremonial exactness, which is to give way to which? You see, that's what he's pointing out, that in that case, what they technically should not have done under the law, give showbread to common men, was in fact done because human need over-superseded ceremonial exactness. You see the point? Well, I see that dazed look on your face. Maybe you don't see the point. You, You understand what I'm saying? Technically, this was a violation of the law to give it to David. It was just for the priest. David wasn't a priest. But in fact, the high priest did give it to David and his men, and he was considered blameless in that act because in a case where human necessity comes into conflict with a ceremonial provision, the ceremonial is to give way to human need and suffering. Do you see the point? All right. You say you do. Let's go to point number two. That's point number one. That's reply number one. The second reply is this. He says, don't you understand that the priests violate the Sabbath every Sabbath day? Now, we think of the priests in that day as having pretty cushy jobs. You know, everybody else had to go out and work for a living. Priests just sort of hung around the temple. 
My friend, the more I have studied about what the priests had to do, you talk about hard work. I mean, these guys basically were butchers. It was like a meat packing plant at the at the temple. I mean, the sheer enormity of sacrifices that were offered. Josephus, for instance, relates that one time to impress the Caesars, the Jews reported to him that they had at the feast of Passover that year slain a hundred thousand lambs. A hundred thousand lambs slain at one Passover. Now, now let that sink in. Just think of the blood. A hundred thousand lambs. You talk about stinky, dirty flies. I mean, this is hard work. Now, they had a lot of priests in the day of Jesus, of course. But the point is, is that this was no cushy job by any stretch of the imagination. It was hard work. And if you look in Numbers, chapter 28, and in our study of Numbers on Thursday night, by the way, we're right at chapter 28. That's where we're going to be next time. You'll see that on the Sabbath day, the priests were required by God to offer a morning and an evening sacrifice. In other words, the same law that says on the Sabbath day you do no work, also to the priest said, you got to work. There's work for you to do. Now Jesus points out this little fact to these people who are condemning him, these Pharisees, saying, well, the priests violate the Sabbath every Sabbath day with their sacrificing. They don't get the day off, but they are considered blameless. Now, if I was a Pharisee sitting there that day, I'd say, okay, so what? How does that apply to the situation at hand? You're no priest. How does that exempt you? What Jesus says is, there is one here who is greater than the temple. These priests serve the ordinances of the temple, and therefore they are exempted from Sabbath day regulation. There's one greater than the temple here. My disciples are in the service of one greater than the temple. You see his point? If the temple is so great that it exempts the priests... If there's one here greater than the temple, then those who serve in his service are likewise exempted. That's his argument. And that leads us to his third point, point number three. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. Man, that's quite a statement. The Son of Man, which was Jesus' term over and over again for himself and for the Messiah... It was a term, by the way, the Jews themselves recognized as referring to the Messiah since that vision in Daniel where he saw one like the Son of Man come near the Ancient of Days and receive this kingdom that would never end. Even the Jews understood that that phrase, the Son of Man, was a reference to the coming Messiah. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day also. What does that mean? Well, notice he didn't just say the Son of Man observes the Sabbath. The Son of Man has the right to interpret the Sabbath. What he says is, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the boss of the Sabbath. He can enforce it. He can suspend it. Uh, just like you've got a boss, if you go down to work every day, they can give you the day off, or they can require you to be there. They're the boss, right? So he's saying the Son of Man is boss of the Sabbath day. 
You, you misunderstand the relationship of the Messiah to the Sabbath. You, you somehow think that the Sabbath day is up here over the Son of Man. It's the other way around. The Son of Man is the one who controls and who bosses, who tells you whether it's okay or what's not okay to do on the Sabbath day. Now, those are his three replies. Now, those are pretty tall claims. And as we say, talk's cheap. Can he back them up? Is there a way to test it? Well, I'm glad you asked. You asked such wonderful questions. In the very next section here of our text, we see that no sooner is this done than in verse 9 that he departs out of those grain fields and goes into the synagogue and is confronted with a test case. There's a man there who has a withered arm. The word withered in the Greek here just means dried up, without moisture, sort of like a, a vine withering or a tree withering. His hand, his arm is shriveled. I grew up, again, in a farming agricultural environment, and uh, it was very dangerous work. Farming in those days wasn't quite what farming is today. We didn't ride around in those little air-conditioned cabs with the radios and the CB and all of that. Uh, it was It was a little more brutal. We had guys, especially up at the cotton gin, getting their arms caught in machinery and so forth and losing hands and losing arms. It was not unusual to see men with bum arms. Similar situation. Here's this fellow with a shriveled up arm. Now, in Luke and Mark, in their account, it says that the Pharisees watched him. They're watching. Here in Matthew's account, they bait him. He walks in. Here's a man with a shriveled up arm. And they asked him a question. A leading question. Baiting him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? Now, you need to know a little bit about how Pharisees thought. Pharisees, in that good old tradition of the rabbis, that oral tradition that had come down to them, the strictest sect of Jews, taught, for instance, that it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath day. They said, for instance, one rabbi says that you can swallow oil on the Sabbath day, but you cannot gargle oil on the Sabbath day. Because, you see, one would be doing work. Intended. And I can give you a whole list of such commandments. I thought that one was probably the most ridiculous one that I saw. What's the difference between swallowing oil and gargling oil? They said, for instance, you can take mint or something like that and rub it on your teeth if you did it for the taste, but not for medicinal, medicinal purposes. I mean, you're talking about straining at gnats and swallowing camels here. In other words, they're saying you can't do anything that would relieve human suffering on the Sabbath day. Unless it's a case of life or death. If the guy is lying on his deathbed and he's about to die, then yes, you can step in and do something. But if it's not a life or death situation, no, you cannot heal on the Sabbath day. Well, that's their position. And here this fellow is with a shriveled up arm. Here Jesus walks in. They say, well, we're just going to sit here and see what happens. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, Jesus looks at them, he, uh, there are a few times that our Lord was angry. This is one of them. 
We do not see it so much right here, but if you'll turn over to Mark, just a moment, Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. In verse 5. Mark 3, verse 5. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, angry, can you be so insensitive? How can you be so hard? In fact, he goes on to say, you care more about your sheep than you do about a man. A sheep gets in trouble on the Sabbath day, and you rule that it's okay to save your sheep, to get your sheep out of the ditch. But there's a man who's suffering, and you forbid any kind of healing activity. Isn't a man worth more than a sheep? Well, that's how he responds. Angry at their cruelty, their lack of sympathy, their lack of mercy, their lack of compassion. And that's, of course, why he brings up that text. Don't you know what this means? You folks who pride yourself of being keepers of the law. In fact, the Pharisees had a reputation of the eyes of the Essenes and others, of those that built the wall around the law. Not only do we keep the law, we put a wall around it so we don't even get close to breaking the law. We sort of fenced it off. We don't even get near breaking the law. You who pride yourself on keeping the law, you know nothing of the law. You don't know the first principle. That you can keep your meticulous observations of the law, of the ceremonies. If you have no mercy in your heart towards your fellow human being, if you don't have compassion and love, then you know nothing of the law. What is it we sang just a moment ago out of Micah? What is it that God requires of us? To do justly, yes, but also to love mercy. And He does. And He's made hope. And the Pharisees go out and hold a powwow to see how they could destroy him. I don't think there's any passage in the New Testament that throws more light on the difference between what the Pharisees taught and what Jesus taught than this passage. I think the Pharisees at the beginning of Jesus' ministry thought he just might be one of them. You know, he's sort of like us. He believes in the authority of Scripture. They did. Obviously, he believes in the miraculous. He looks like one of the prophets. He just might be the Messiah. And, of course, if he is the Messiah, certainly he will come and say that he belongs to us. He will validate us. He's one of us. And I, and I think, seriously, they thought that for a long time. He just might be one of us. And then as time went on, and we see over the last three weeks of how this rift is developing, and it comes certainly full force and out front today, this rift between Jesus and the Pharisees. We see that, no, although they held certain things in common, the Pharisees really were nothing like Jesus. 
Their ideas were nothing like his ideas. Their interpretation of the law was nowhere near his interpretation of the law. Their concept of God was nowhere near his concept of God. And rather than Jesus being one of them and receiving their stamp of approval, it is this incident that sort of pushes them over the edge. He's got to go. He must be destroyed. Their hesitancy, their doubts now erupt into an open hostility. In their minds, this is all the proof that they need. Jesus cannot possibly be the Messiah. We don't know what he is. We don't know who he is. We don't really understand him, where he's come from. But this we know. He cannot be the Messiah. How could one who violates the very law of God claim to be the Son of God? You see the problem from their point of view? But they've got this big problem. I tell you, I don't know if I'd have been a Pharisee. How do you solve this problem? Here on the one hand, they say he violates the Sabbath. Well, you violate the Sabbath by doing work. Well, in this incident, tell me who did the work. Who violated the Sabbath? Who worked? The man, did he work? You know, the man that was healed? I mean, Jesus said to him, stretch forth your hand. Is that a violation of the Sabbath? Would you say he's guilty of doing work on the Sabbath day? Well, no. Can't hardly say he violated the Sabbath. How about Jesus? How much work did he do? Well, he told the man, stretch forth your arm. Is that a violation of the Sabbath? In other words, the person who healed did the work. And it's evident that God healed him. I mean, that's Christ's claim all the way through his earthly ministry. The things that I do, I do not in, you know, I don't do what I see. I do what the Father shows me to do. And dependent on the Father's power, that these miracles that he does are the Father's gifts and signs to him, authenticating his ministry. In other words, the Pharisees got this problem. If he's not the Messiah, how'd this guy get healed? Who healed him? If this is a violation of the Sabbath day, who violated it? You see their problem? And in the rejection of Christ here at this point, it's just one small step away from not only repudiating him, but repudiating the power by which this miracle was performed, blaspheming the power. And if you'll notice in our text, we're just shortly away from them doing precisely that. If they cannot deny that the miracle was done, their solution is to say, okay, he did a miracle, but he did it by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. He did it by Satan's own power. You see, you're just a small step away from what Jesus will call the unpardonable sin. Ascribing to Satan the works of the Holy Spirit. They're on the verge. And they are caught, as it were, on the horns of this dilemma. How do we condemn him for being a Sabbath breaker without condemning God for breaking his own Sabbath, for working on the Sabbath day? How do you get around it? And their only solution is to say it wasn't God that worked, it was the devil that worked. You see, this is serious stuff. This isn't just a matter of hair splitting. 
It all depends on who Jesus is. If he's just a pretender, if he's a sham, then by all means, they're right to respond to him in the way that they have. But if he is who he claims to be, then they've got a big problem. And the Pharisees, when confronted with the vindication of God, when God has come down squarely on the side of his son, here's a conflict, two parties, and God has come down on the side of his son, rather than seeing that and repenting, it drives them further and further away from God. They exhibit with their rage and their anger the age-old enmity that God promised that he would put between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that enmity that we see exhibiting itself in the case of Cain and Abel when God came down squarely on Abel's side and Cain murdered him. Paul refers to that same enmity, speaks of Ishmael and Isaac. And in Galatians, he says that's what's really going on here today as he looked at the Christian church being persecuted by the Jews of his day the powers that be in Jerusalem. He's simply saying this is the continuation of that age-old enmity between flesh and spirit, that when God comes down on the side of one man, the other man does his best to kill him. That, that has always amazed me about the ministry of Christ. Why would these people get so upset at Jesus? Why? Why would you want to kill Jesus? Are you afraid he's going to heal you? Get those sick people out of here. Here he comes, you know. Get women and children off the street. And, man, keep him out of the graveyard. Don't tell him what he's going to do if he gets out there. Do you understand? How ridiculous. Why would you kill Jesus? Why would you hate him? What could so incite you that you would hold a powwow, a council, to see how you can destroy him? My friend, the first murder ever recorded in human history was a religious murder. It arose from that enmity between flesh and spirit. We see that process continuing on in the life of Jesus, and my friend, it's still around today. Our popular culture, we're getting real close to condemning anyone who would stand in the pulpit and say that Jesus is the Son of God the only way of salvation? As our culture wants to define that as a hate crime. Now that's astounding in a way that Christians would be somehow called guilty of hate crimes when it is a matter of record and history that it is in a Christian culture that freedom of conscience, liberty of religion, and freedom of these things is, in fact, that's where you found it, was in a nation founded on Christian principles. I don't know if our nation was ever a Christian nation, but certainly Christian principles helped form and shape the thinking that went into the foundation of our nation. In other words, I have my views. I have strong views. I don't apologize for them. But I'm not out to get my neighbor because he doesn't have and share the same views I have. I have. It's sort of like the golden rule. If I expect my neighbor to give me liberty of conscience, to worship God as I see fit, then I must grant him the same right, the same freedom. It's just an application of that rule, that principle. But all of a sudden, is it interesting to you that in our day and time, Christians have become the bad guy? 
rigid, narrow. The kids are going to be watching this video of Larry King's show. It was aired about four Wednesday nights ago. My good friend D.A. Carson was on that, and uh, just listening to Carson's worth the worth watching the video. But uh, Carson made the point as uh, Larry King asked a very pointed question about Christians being bigoted and narrow, intolerant, and uh, D.A. Carson made an interesting comment that he said in the last 50 years our whole definition of such things have changed that a tolerant person used to be someone who had strong convictions but allowed his neighbor to have strong convictions too. He says today a tolerant person is one who has no convictions and if you have convictions you're intolerant. Now, we might argue about what's going on, but I think what's going on is exactly the same process we see going on here. There is this problem. If Jesus is just a good teacher, a good man, another Gandhi, a guru of some sort, then by all means, let's just embrace everything. You, you go to heaven your way, I'll go to heaven mine, we'll all get there. You take the high road, I'll take the low road, we're all going to the same place. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be in the New Testament... And I want you to notice that in no uncertain terms or words he makes this claim that he is the Son of Man, he has the right to interpret the law, he can suspend the law as he pleases, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's one greater than the temple. And if you want proof, just look at that man working his arm. There's your proof. To deny his claim, you've got to do something with that miracle. Now let's bring things to a close. We Just a few questions. I wonder, we, and I mean you and I individually, personally, and as a church, how much of a Pharisee is in us. Now when I say that, I think each and every person, every Christian, has a little bit of Pharisee still left in him. That we love things more than we love people. I remember a fellow told me one time, says you, uh, you love people and use things, not vice versa. These Pharisees, I, I understand our Lord's anger. They don't give a hoot about this poor fellow. They don't care about him. There's other times that they'll bring him a sick person to tempt him, to test him, just to see what he'll do on the Sabbath day. They don't give a hoot. These are just people to be used. They have no compassion, no pity, no mercy. And you'll see it over and over again. I wonder how much Phariseeism still resides in my heart. No, I like to think I'm above that. I like to think that, you know, I'm a Christian and I believe that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul, move over. There's a new chief of the sinners in town. His name is Mark Webb. That's my doctrine. That's what I say I believe. But my, my. Am I guilty? How much do I really love people? 
How much pity and compassion do I have for those around me? I, I think we're guilty, folks, in conservative evangelical Christianity, guilty of this basic principle. We, we look at liberal Christianity who have basically tossed out the gospel and have embraced social work, social reform, helping folks. And we say, well, you know, it's just a bunch of heretics. And then we over on the other side who hold on to what we would call evangelical conservative Christianity, we, we've made doctrine, as it were, our God, and we've tossed out the love of people. Do you understand what I'm saying? That we're just as guilty, but we're on the other side of the fence. We've got all the forms right. We dot all our I's and cross all our T's. We know all the right things to say. And yes, we believe about God. But how much do we really look like God? You see, that's the problem. These Pharisees didn't think Jesus looked like God at all. He who was in the very bosom of the Father, who came to reveal to us what God looked like, they said, we don't see God there at all. Oh, may God break my heart with the misery that's round about us. May I have a heart of compassion and pity. I don't ever want to pat people on the back, and I don't want you to pat me on the back when I'm in sin. Sin destroys. Sin kills. You know, if you're my doctor and I've got cancer, why don't you tell me? If you've got to cut a piece of my body off to get rid of it, go ahead and do it. Don't try to be my friend. Don't say, no, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I want to tell you you're all right. You're just doing fine. My friend, if you're my doctor, don't do that. And my friend, if you're my friend, if you're my brother and sister in Christ, you're not going to pat me on the back when I have the cancer of sin in my life and say, there, there, it's all right. No, it's not all right. Christ Jesus didn't come into the world to save men in their sins. He came to save them from their sins. But on the other hand, where will you ever find one who was more a friend of sinners? That's question number one. Question number two. When God comes down on the other side, you know what happened here? You got a conflict, and God came down on the side of Christ. That's clear. When God comes down on the other side, and if I'm in a conflict, how do I respond? Do I repent, or do I respond with rage and fury? Hmm, that's hard. What if God validates the other guy, authenticates his position rather than mine? How do I respond? Am I willing to repent? Or am I going to be like a Pharisee? This is my position. I'm right, and I'll never let go of it. Interesting questions. That's what happened to them. And thirdly, can I close with this appeal that I don't know your heart this morning. I don't know where you are. But there's a strange thing going on in this text. You may not have even noticed it. We read through this. We're familiar with it. But do you realize what Jesus told this man to do? He told a man with a withered arm to stretch it forth. He told a man with an arm that was paralyzed, that was shriveled, dried up, stretch it. My friend, if he could stretch it, he wouldn't need Jesus. If he could do what our Master told him to do, he didn't need healing. That's what he couldn't do. He couldn't stretch his arm. You notice that? 
Jesus is commanding him to do what he can't do. But he did it. Oh, there's a lesson there. Jesus tells us, repent. We who are in love with sin, he says, repent. Turn. Let go of it. Turn your back on it. Walk away from it. And you say, I can't. I know you can't. But you must. And you will. If you're to be saved. You see, he says, believe on me. Trust me. Bet your life on me. Place your life in my hands. Let go of it. Turn loose of the steering wheel. Turn loose of the reins. Cast your soul into my hands. And you say, I can't. I who am in love with my own way, with this overblown, puffed up opinion of myself, I just can't let go. I know you can't, but you must. Oh, you must, if ever you are to be saved. You will. You will believe to the saving of your soul. You will repent of sin. You'll turn your back and you'll walk straight to the Savior. You who must come, as the Scripture itself says, can't come. To in love with sin. To in love with the world. To in love with Satan and his ways and snares. You can't. But you must. You you see, the saving power of Christ is exactly that. He gives us an ability to do what we can't do, what we won't do, what we would never do. He gives us grace. Grace. And all through His ministry... He kept commanding people to do what they couldn't do. He commanded blind eyes to see. He commanded deaf ears, be open, hear. He commanded tongues of the damned to be loose. And they were. He commanded a dead man. Where do you suppose he got the ability? He commanded a dead man to come forth. And he came. The same one who gives the command is able to give you the power to obey it. It's not in you. And that's why when the apostles would look at men turning loose of sin and embracing Jesus Christ... They didn't come back saying, my, you should have seen those crazy Gentiles, those stupid Gentiles. They finally smartened up. I mean, they've really gotten with it. They've finally seen the light. You know what they said? They would come back and say, well, God's opened the door of faith to them. Paul and Barnabas came back on their first missionary journey to the church at Antioch, rehearsing all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You see, they see it as the work of God, not the work of man. Here's an example. Man, stretch forth your hand. And he who couldn't, did. My, my, that ought to be a good description of a lot of us in this room today. There was a time we couldn't. 
we wouldn't. And today we love what we once hated. We embrace what we once refused. We flee to that which once we fled from. Where do you suppose the ability came? From that Savior who came into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Father, we see here how much you hate that attitude, that self-righteous, smugness, critical, cruel attitude of a Pharisee. And Lord, what, what troubles us is we still see so much of that within us. Lord, we hate it, we detest it, and yet, Father, we sometimes exhibit it in this world. We ask that you might rid us of it once and for all. Father, you'd humble us and cause us to see that when we get right down to it, we have nothing to commend us in your sight. There's no difference between us and that drunk in the gutter, that murderer there on death row, because if it were not for your grace, there we would be. Father, may we, how, how can we consistent? with the fact that we who have received so freely your grace as a free gift from your hand, how can we then turn around and deny such grace to our fellow man? We who have been the benefactor of your free gift, how can we be niggardly and stingy towards our fellow man? Father, deal with our hearts. Make us like Christ. Father, may we be worthy of the name Christian. May we look like little Christ. May we follow in His steps and may we learn to love Him and love the way He lived, how He lived. And Father, may You make us truly Your children, conform us to the image of Your Son. And Father, there may be those here this morning who know You not, who are outside the kingdom, who have no desire for these things. And Father, I plead with them to turn from sin and to turn to Christ to cast their soul's hope into His hands. And Father, yet I know that I'm like Ezekiel preaching to those dry bones. That Father, my words cannot sway them. The hold that Satan has on their soul is far too tight and too powerful, too strong for the mere words of a man to have any efficacy. But Father, may they hear Your truth and may that truth set them free as Your Spirit comes with power upon their lives to break the hold that Satan has there. And Lord, to put within their hearts the desire to will and to do of your good pleasure a love for Christ, a desire to know Him no matter what it may cost, a desire to follow Him even if it costs us our life. Lord, would you do that work that only you can do in the hearts of these today that are lost. Lord, be with us as parents, as teachers, Lord, in our responsibilities in the week, wherever we go. May we have that heart for sinners that we see in our Lord. Bless us as we think on these things. Let not these things soon escape us, for it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.